Bibles open at Philippians chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9 this evening. Just verses 8 and 9 will be our focus for study this evening. It's not as popular a phrase or maybe not a phrase I've heard as often as I used to, but uh, you might remember people used to say, you are what you eat, you are what you eat, meaning if you're always eating junk food, (coughs) you're going to end up with a body full of junk and you'll be dangerously unhealthy and so you need to eat the right stuff to be healthy physically. And today there is a booming industry and a great deal of attention devoted to diet and healthy eating and healthy living. There's a lot of truth in that statement, you are what you eat. It's also true though that you are what you think about. I need to be careful, especially in the culture we're now living in. I'm not saying uh, you are whatever you think you are. That's a whole different matter that we'll not get too far into tonight. But what I mean is that the things that we choose to think about, the ideas and the opinions that we are most, most influenced by, will shape and mould the people we become, the attitudes that we have, the things that we do. That's why Paul writes here in Philippians 4 verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, notice, think about these things. Think about them. The word there for think means turn it over in your mind. Chew on it. Meditate on it. We saw last week how Paul emphasized the importance of coming to God in prayer when we're anxious. And if we are in a good practice of doing that, instead of just worrying about things, but turning those worries into prayers. Paul says in verse 7 here that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says bringing our burdens to God in prayer leads to God's peace, guarding our hearts and minds. But that invites a question. What do our hearts and our minds need to be guarded from? In what sense do we need to guard what we think about? Well, that brings us to our first thought for this evening, our our first main point, and that is the need for godly thinking. The need for godly thinking. Uh, In in writing verses 7 to 9 here in Philippians 4, Paul seems to have have another book, another part of God's word in mind. Particularly, it seems he may be thinking about Proverbs 4, verse 23 And if you're taking notes, it's worth writing down that reference and you can uh, have a look at these words later. But Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the wellsprings of life. And in scripture, the heart is not that sort of love heart that we see on Valentine's Day cards or the little emoji that gets used uh, for all kinds of things now in in text messages or social media posts. Uh, The heart in scripture is not just, in a sense, those sort of gushy feelings, you might say. The heart is the inner person. And it includes our thoughts, the moral decisions, the center of who we are. And it must be guarded. Proverbs says that. Paul says that. We must be careful about what we allow ourselves to think about, what we allow our hearts to yearn for. 
And of course, this is hugely challenging because we are thinking about something virtually every second of the waking day. And in ways that we probably don't even realize, the words that we hear, the actions or behavior that we see in the world, it has an impact upon how we think and how we then act. We all know that this is true of children. Uh, We all know the saying that children's minds are like sponges, boys and girls, uh, even the very youngest boys and girls in our church. You have phenomenal brain power, every single one of you. Uh, You have great capacity to take things in and remember them and think about them and uh, understand them. Uh, And that's that's a, a challenge for parents because we need to be so mindful of the influences and the things that our children see and hear and will then think about and take into their minds and hearts. And that's why the whole argument that we should allow children to decide uh, if they, for some reason, think they need to change gender is totally nonsensical. Our children are living in a more highly sexualized culture than any in recent history. A culture that is so much more brazen in matters of sexuality. And so, of course, little children are going to see and hear things that make them think a certain way and, and think wrongly and foolishly a certain way a lot of the time. And so when a few years ago the... Tavistock Clinic, which has since been investigated and I think is due to close, but when it was reported by the Tavistock Clinic several years ago, a massive increase in the number of children claiming to have been born, quote, in the wrong body. That was simply because our culture is subtly and sometimes not so subtly, but persistently getting them to think wrongly and and misguidedly about gender and identity. Our children are being brought up in a culture that says, if you feel something, you are that thing, or you should just have that thing, or you should desire that thing, and you shouldn't question it, and neither should anyone else, and you should follow through on what you feel. And even for for adults, for older children, or for grown men and women, this remains the case, that we are liable, we are susceptible to the thinking of the world, to the influences of the world. The movies we watch, the song lyrics we listen to, the the chatter on the radio or on our screens, all of it influences how we think, more perhaps than we often realise. There's a generation of people who treat Sunday as a day for back-to-back TV because of the influence of Sky Sports over the past 30 years or so. And that's had an impact Uh, Not just Sky Sports, but other things as well. The materialistic culture we live in, the push for more shopping and and more leisure time and more comfort time has influenced how even many believers now think about the Lord's Day. There's a generation of young men in the UK and Ireland uh, for whom suicide rates are sky high compared to previous generations. And there have been all kinds of... uh, of influences in society that have gripped the hearts of young men and increasingly young women as well and poisoned their minds. For teenagers and young adults, they're part of a generation that in some ways has had a huge social experiment carried out on their minds. That experiment being social media. 30 second videos, Instagram influencers, YouTubers all telling them to Think this way or act this way or look this way. Ultimately, 
at the root of so many of the drastic problems that we're seeing in our culture today, friends, is the, is the fact that people have been thinking about anything but the truth of God's word. People's thoughts have been on hobbies, body image, possessions, the next pay bump, the next holiday, the ideal lifestyle, whatever it may be. And God's word and God's truth have been completely drowned out in the thoughts of men and women. Most people in our society probably spend a lot of time thinking about things that aren't bad in and of themselves, but which have become substitute gods and dominate their thinking more than it should. Whether it's their children or their house or their exercise regime or their social life, these things have become, to borrow the words of the psalmist in Psalm 1, their chief delight, instead of God's word being their chief delight. When you're driving your car, you can either have your car in gear or you can have it in neutral Either the car is moving forwards or backwards or it can be left sitting still, sitting in neutral. The thoughts of our minds, friends, are almost, I would say, maybe never neutral. They're either driving you towards God or they're driving you to act in ways that glorify God or they're driving you away from God. And that is why it's so crucial that we guard our minds, that we have a close walk with the Lord through weekly worship on the Lord's Day, at other times as well, our own daily times of scripture reading and meditation and prayer. The psalmist we sang it earlier said, Lord, you are my God, I'll seek you early. Early in the day, or early in the crisis, or early in point of need. Lest instead of meditating upon scripture and upon our God, we're just brainwashed by the lies of the world. This is what some people would refer to as developing a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview. Now that maybe sounds very theoretical, but it's actually intensely practical. Uh, a book that I would re- recommend to you, it's a little heavy in places, but it's a book written by Peter Jones. He's done a lot of work on this, a Christian uh, writer and, uh, and uh, teacher. It's called The Other Worldview. The Other Worldview. Uh, And he says, a worldview contains a series of convictions and conclusions about the nature of the world that provide fundamental meaning and direction for our lives. So a worldview provides the direction your life goes and how you understand yourself, how you understand your world, how you decide to make your way through the world. He says it's like a tube map of the London Underground. You're on one of the, the trains or you have an app on your phone and you know, the, the London Underground just an absolute maze if, if you're not familiar with it. But we have a map and it, it guides us through. And that's what a, a Christian is to do. In our, we are to have a worldview to guide us through the maze of thinking and influences and ideas in our world. So our worldview, friends, is how we think about ourselves, how we think about our world, how we make sense of the world we are in. And in some ways, the question is not, do you have a worldview? The question is, who or what is forming your worldview? Because whether we call it that or not, we all do think about the world in certain ways. Who or what is the greatest influence on your thoughts? Your thoughts about your own identity. 
Your thoughts about your life's purpose. Your thoughts about what should take priority in your life. And of course if we're followers of Jesus Christ. God's word. As we hear it preached. As we sing it. As we read it. As it is taught to us. As we meditate upon it. That is the foundation for shaping our entire worldview, our entire life. That's why the, the scheme running in the summer uh, in our church, theological foundations for, for our young people, giving them a framework, a way to think about their world. If God's word isn't doing that in your life, then someone or something else is, whether we would admit it or not. The makeup gurus on Instagram, the celebrities on TV, your friends at school or university, whatever it may be. Who supplies your food for thought on a Monday morning? Whose words and actions are you most concerned to see up close? Where does your mind wander when it has time to wander? It's so important that we guard our minds that we realize every minute of every day that either we are being molded by the world or we are being molded by the word so the need for godly thinking secondly and we'll take more time on this the practice of godly thinking the practice of godly thinking my fear is that many christians are not thinkers And that's not to say that we all have to be reading five books a month or listening to ten sermons a week. But if you were to ask the average Christian today why they worship the way they do, for example, setting aside our convictions about exclusive psalm singing and and not using instruments, setting that aside, I'm not sure the average Christian would know where to start if someone asked them, why do you do these particular things in worship and maybe don't do other things? Why do you sing these particular songs or use those particular instruments? What do you believe is happening at the Lord's Supper? Why do you believe it's important that we meet publicly on the Lord's Day? Ask the average Christian, if the Old Testament is full of hundreds of laws that Christians don't have to keep anymore, if in the Old Testament God's people were a nation, Israel, who slaughtered their enemies at times, And none of that applies either. Well, why does the Old Testament matter? I think a lot of Christians wouldn't know how to answer that because they haven't thought about it. Christians are supposed to be thinkers. Not just so that we can defend our faith. Peter says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Be able to logically answer people's questions but so that we can be distinct from the world in areas where the world is going badly astray and so that we can enjoy the good things that there are to enjoy in this world and enjoy them in the right way. Historically, Christians, the church, thought carefully about things. Not just the Bible, but every part of life. That's why the Western world's oldest leading universities were all founded by Christians. Uh, You'd be forgiven for not knowing that, the state some of our leading universities are in nowadays and the things that they champion and promote and push. But most of the leading universities in the UK and, and parts of Europe, the United States, they were founded by Christians. Some of their mottos are quotes from Scripture. 
Because you see, it was the church, it was believers who thought to themselves, we know and worship the God who made everything, the whole universe. So, so to his honour and glory, we should investigate everything. We should understand the world that we live in. We should, uh, we should think about its beauty and its raw materials and how to use it all for God's glory. And so whether it's the world of art or music or science or sport, if Christians want to influence and enjoy these things, we have to think and apply our faith to them. Paul uses seven words to describe what Christians should be thinking about here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. First of all, he says, uh, and by the way, he's using emphatic, emphatic language here. Uh, when he says that we should be thinking about these things at the end of verse 8. That's a command. It's a standing command. Uh, and that word whatever that he keeps using. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely and so forth. That's to emphasize his point. It's these kinds of things that we're to think about he's saying. And so first of all he says in verse 8. Whatever is true. <coughs> whatever is true. The whole of scripture is true. Whatever God's word says is true. And so that has to be where we begin when we're thinking about whatever is true. And that will invariably take up a lot of our concern and a lot of the answer as to what is true. We find it in God's word. Jesus said during his high priestly prayer in John 17, your word is truth. So if you want to think about what is true, this has to be where we begin. And after that, we turn to what other people have said about Scripture, people who have uh, a belief in the inerrancy and perfection and completion of Scripture, how they've explained it, how they apply it. Paul then says, whatever is honourable, honourable. And the idea here is something worthy of respect. There's nothing shady or deceitful or selfish about it. Does that not immediately rule out vast swathes of what is on the TV? What is online, what is, what is sung about in Psalms, what's in our social media feeds. It's not honourable. It's not worth our thought or our interest. He says whatever is just could also be translated righteous. And the idea of judgment comes in here. God the Son of course is one day going to judge all peoples and all of our actions. And so if you can truly think to yourself, you you would imagine the Lord Jesus Christ would approve of someone or something. And it's righteous, it's worthy of thought and interest. Whatever is pure, Paul says, whatever is pure. That rules out quite a few TV channels as well. So much of what is celebrated and permitted in our culture is totally impure. It's, It's wicked, it's disgusting. We need to be filling our minds with what is pure, not what has been contaminated by the world's sin. Whatever is lovely, Paul says. Whatever is attractive, beautiful to think about, something that humbles us because it's, it's just good, it's lovely. This, of course, would include much of the created world, which again is worthy of study and interest. The beauty of the world God has made, our world is Stained by sin, even creation has been impacted by sin, and yet it still shows us it still shows us the hand of God, and there's much beauty to enjoy in it. 
There's beautiful music in the world. There's beautiful works of art. There's beautiful literature. If you're a Christian, you find things attractive now that the world finds boring. As you grow in your faith, the things that will be most lovely to you may well be things that the world thinks are a joke. Not interesting. They're not important. Fellowship with other believers. Serving Christ. Declaring his word. Whatever is commendable, Paul says. This particular word is used only this one time in the whole New Testament. One writer translates it as fair sounding. Something that you can speak well of to others. You can say to them, did you see this? Did you hear about that? Really worthwhile. This is really wonderful. This is worthy of your time. First and foremost again, friends, the, the things that Paul commends to our thoughts, they'll flow out of a close walk with Christ. Ultimately in Christ we find what is true and honourable and commendable and pure and lovely. All of those things could be descriptions of Jesus. And in God's word and in reading about what God has done and promised to do, you will find pure, honourable, lovely things to think about. And it is also possible to find true, lovely, pure things in the world. But it's more difficult because of the sin in our world and the impurity in our world. But there are good things in the world as well. One writer says, God is the creator and giver of all good gifts. So we shouldn't be surprised to find many praiseworthy qualities in our world. But we must sift, through, sift things through the grid of scripture. Some of you know what it is to sift things or uh, to put food through a sieve. Some of us who prefer uh, pure orange juice rather than the juicy bits orange juice, we might have to get the sieve out and uh, get the juicy bits left in the sieve so we can enjoy pure orange juice and enjoy what's left. And we need to sift the things that we see in our world. There's much to enjoy, many good things, hobbies, work. Uh, there are pure and commendable and lovely things in the world of farming or teaching or parenting there are enjoyable hobbies to sink our teeth into but we have to sift things can't just go into these things with our brains as I said earlier we can't really keep our brains in neutral we go into those areas of interest whatever they may be whatever your interest might be and we sift them through the grid of God's word <clears throat> There are commendable and honourable ways to, to work, to farm, to teach, to parent, uh, to look after patients. There are commendable and honourable ways to raise our children. There, uh, there's purity and loveliness to be found in human relationships. There's great beauty to be found in some of the music that's been composed down through the centuries. Insofar as we find art or work or culture that is true and commendable and pure, it's because the influence of God's truth ultimately rests upon it, friends. But there's also terrible ugliness and impurity in our world. There are false gospels being preached at us in music lyrics and in film dialogue and in our wider culture. False gospels about the origins of our universe or our ultimate value as human beings, or about the preciousness of life in the womb, a host of other things. And so God's word must be the foundation for the worldview and the way we think about our world.
Look what Paul says in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice these things. Think about these things and practice these things. Paul says, if you're wondering what it looks like to live in a way that is true and honourable and so forth, consider the example I've given you. This has been a theme of the letter. That Paul has been setting examples before the Philippians for them to follow himself, Timothy and Epaphroditus. The ultimate example, of course, of the Lord Jesus himself in the heart of the letter. (coughs) And again, he's saying, don't just allow yourself to blindly, naively go in and be influenced by the world. Set godly examples in front of you of how to think and how to act. What does Jesus think about your thoughts, dear friend? Is he in your thoughts? Does he govern your thoughts? What you choose to read, what you choose to watch, what you choose to laugh at or spend time on or talk about with friends or family. You are what you think about. You are what you think about. And so think about what is true, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Have your thoughts guarded by Christ, by people who have written about Christ, by people who have served Christ, by people who are more like Christ than you are right now. Practice these things. And I may well, I'm not saying necessarily that this means an end to certain hobbies or interests altogether. There might be things that we just absolutely can have nothing to do with. But it may be a case, particularly for those of you who are aunts and uncles or mums and dads, little children, that having watched something or listened to something or experienced something, you talk about it. What did you think about that? What was that story or that movie or that song saying? What were some of the words that were used? What's the message behind it? And so we think and we sift and we compare things against the truth of God's word. Think about these things. Practice these things. So the need for godly thinking, the practice of godly thinking... And thirdly and finally this evening, the promise for godly thinkers. The promise for godly thinkers. Paul says we're to think about these things, verse 8. He says we're to practice these things in verse 9. And then notice the promise if we do think uh, think about this and put it into practice. He says the God of peace will be with you, verse 9. The God of peace will be with you. The word peace bookends this little section. If you look again at verse 7, he says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then again, excuse me, then again at the end of verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. Not only will God give you his peace in life's ups and downs, but if you're setting your mind on what is true and honourable and lovely, if you're setting your mind on Christ, His very presence will be with you. It's not just that he will give you something, but he will give you himself. You'll know that assurance of God with you and in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mentioned earlier that the startling number of the statistics of people in the UK and Ireland today struggling with anxious or even suicidal thoughts. And and that is the testimony of so many people today that uh, even if they're if they're not thinking uh, with suicidal thoughts, they're, they're dreadfully anxious. We're seeing this uh, 
It's an epidemic amongst our young people. Despite living with so many good things, it would seem in our part of the world, anxiety levels are higher than ever. And there are many, many reasons that uh, contribute to that. Maybe you feel some of this anxiety as well. Christians aren't immune from it. Paul has spoken to this issue already in the letter. He'll speak to it again. But if we do find ourselves, friends, with growing anxiety or worry, if we're uneasy, if we're not sleeping well, if we're tossing and turning, and I say this with, 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 the love, uh, with love as your pastor, could it be that we're not filling our minds enough with what is true and pure and just and commendable, but instead with things that are untrue and impure and, and not worth thinking about at all? we're in the wonderfully privileged position of being able to to come here 52 weeks of the year if we want to hear hundreds of sermons sing hundreds of portions of God's word and praise pray hundreds of prayers hear the scriptures read and taught do we think about them do we think about what we're singing and reading and hearing preached As you drive your car this week, as you go on a walk, as you spend time with your family or friends, what will you think about? What will you talk about? Whose voice will you be listening to most often? Whose voice will influence you most strongly this week? We can listen to Bible teaching anytime, anywhere. Podcasts, audiobooks, sermon websites. We can come to Bible studies. We can meet freely with Christians. We can... Get involved in all kinds of things to help us think about the right stuff. And to think about our lives and our world in the right way. And to experience as we do so the gift of God's peace. But if we just mindlessly swipe or tap on our phones. Mindlessly let the chatter of the world fill all of our silences. Mindlessly listen to what the world is throwing at us. We will be anxious Worried, shallow people. We won't have peace. We'll be discouraged because that's that's what happens when our minds are filled with earthly, fleeting, pressing, anxious things. Instead of with what is true and honourable and lovely and pure and commendable. But Here's this wonderful promise for us this evening, friends. In the midst of whatever might be causing you worry as this new week begins. And I don't mean at all to make light of those concerns that all of us have for ourselves, our families, uh, as a new week begins. Here's this wonderful promise. If you ask for God to guard your heart and your mind, the God of peace will be with you. That's his promise in this passage. He will be with you. That shepherd will draw near to you with his rod and staff to comfort you. And this is where God is so gracious to us because we should be thinking about whatever is true and pure and just anyway. We should just be doing it because we're commanded to do it. And yet God promises us that if we do only what we're supposed to be doing in the first place, it'll be with us. That he'll help us in our time of need. That he'll give us his peace. I will never leave you or forsake you, the Lord Jesus has said. You'll have my peace that passes all understanding. You'll have my presence and help and strength for whatever ups and downs you're facing in your life this day.
And so do you know this peace? It can't be found without first and foremost confessing sin, repenting of sin, coming to Christ as your Lord and Saviour. He is the one who makes peace between us and a holy God. Do you know his peace? Or are you restless because you've been looking for peace in all the wrong places, (coughs) thinking about things that aren't even true and which leave you anxious? Come to Christ. Know his peace. Get your mind off the transitory, fleeting, silly stuff of our world and fix your mind on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who reigns today on heaven's throne. In a world that promises us so much and yet gives us so little, may we think about whatever is true and honourable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. May we fill our minds day and daily with thoughts of Christ, our lovely, wonderful, honourable Saviour. May we think about him as we do our work and raise our children and share the scriptures. May we guard our minds against the lies of the world. And in doing so, we will know God's peace. Amen.